Hello, and welcome back to the Anxiety Book Club. Uh, this is episode 29, and I'm very glad to be joined today by writer and essayist Christy Tate, whose book group, How One Therapist and a Circle of Strangers Saved My Life, I absolutely devoured. Um, probably the fastest book I've ever read for the podcast. Uh, I mean, part of that is because a lot of them are self-help manuals, and this one is, um, you know, a memoir. Uh, but still really an awesome read. And, and I'm so glad uh, that the author, Christy, could be with us today. So thank you, Christy. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Totally. Um, and uh, just to fill out your uh, bio a little bit, I'm taking this from your, your website. You're based in Chicago um, and you've been published in the New York Times, the Rumpus, the Washington Post, a bunch of other awesome publications. Um, and um, I guess group um, is the longest, is, is group your book? Is that the first or only book you've written so far? Yes, that's my debut book. And it's, as you said, it's a memoir. So that's the longest thing I've ever written that got published. <laughs> there mm -hmm. are other screeds in my computer, but they'll never see the light of day. Oh, no. Well, what, how, can we, how can we change your mind about that? <laughs> It'll take a lot of editing. <laughs> yeah, and this is a pretty new book, right? It came out last year. Right. It act the it came out in October of twenty twenty and then the paperback came out the following June. So it's still pretty new as far as books go. Mm -hmm. And it was it was it written pre COVID? Yes, it was written pre COVID. We were well into editing when the uh pandemic hit. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I think I've got some questions towards the end about how how uh group therapy might be working for you. Um, in the era of COVID nineteen, yeah. Um, but yeah, just to give a little bit of a a little bit of background. So the book is a memoir. It's about your life um, from a lawyer to member of group therapy to uh, now writer, and it's full of juicy details about your growth as a person and a lot about the intricacies of how group therapy works, which a lot of people, including myself, had no idea. Yeah, um, really. So, um, yeah, thanks for writing it. It was, it was really informative and, and really entertaining. Um, I'm sure many people have told you that. Yeah, I definitely, people ask me all the time, did you write this book to help people? And I, I really, when I set out to write it, I started writing in November of 2015. And I, for many, many years of writing, I didn't think anyone would read it because I'm, who wants to read a note, a, a memoir by, an unknown white lady in Chicago trying to get well. I just couldn't, I couldn't see the appeal of it, but I kept working and it makes me very humbled to imagine that it's helpful. That's a pretty high compliment. And I take that pretty seriously. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure it's motivated people. Um, Cause you know, it's written for a mainstream audience. You don't have to be, you know, a therapist. You just have to have a mind and I guess problems uh, to find it compelling. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that, what one of the things that I realized early on in the writing process, I started to share some pages with a writing group or a writing coach, and people had no idea, like, what is group therapy? And I had, you know, I'd been sort of coming out of the closet in my real life about being a person who goes to group therapy. And people are always wide eyed, and they're stunned. How could you do that? There's other people there. Ew. Like people are just like, ew. And I'm not sure my book necessarily makes people think differently. But what I hope that they know from the book is that there's a tool out there 
that they may not know about that might not be right for them, but it might be right for their kid or someone they know who's suffering. The more tools in our toolbox for mental health, the better we all are. I a hundred percent agree with that. Um, Cause you know, it's not a one size fits all. Some things work for yeah. some people, but not others. Um, so, and, and we'll kind of get into the nitty gritty of this, but the group as it's described with Dr. Rosen and your your sort of group mates or teammates is pretty, I don't know, is it is it unique? I mean, are, do they all involve this sort of um, strangely insightful, uh, <laughs> you know, very um, uh, sort of unbridled sort of therapist who makes these sort of uh, unconventional suggestions? Is that how we should understand group therapy mostly or is it pretty uh, unique circumstance you've described? I think that there's some very particular elements to my story, and those would be largely due to Dr. Rosen. He is the therapist. He's this is this is a pseudonym. He's the therapist I saw that's depicted in the group. I still see him. What I've come to understand, and I knew this before I started writing, I knew that he was a renegade, a maverick, very unorthodox. And I knew this because I had throughout the years. I had group mates who were also therapists and they would come in and they would say, y'all know this is not normal, right? <laughs> and I didn't know. I'm a lawyer. I don't know anything about this. I don't know what is common. And I would mention it to other people and they would say, oh my God, why are you allowed to tell me anything that happens in your therapy group? And I was like, well, why wouldn't I? So what I've come to understand since touring with the book, and I've talked to many, many therapists, I've talked at therapy associations and groups of residents who are studying group psychotherapy, and they have mixed feelings about Dr. Rosen, which I completely respect, but they also have told me that there are a couple of norms. They're not ethical norms, but they are norms that Dr. Rosen has chosen not to enforce with his groups, and one of them is confidentiality. He, of course, is bound by HIPAA and his professional ethics. He can't talk about his patients um, uh, with other patients or other people. So he doesn't take information out of the group. But he didn't impose that confidentiality on his group mates. He didn't ever make me sign anything to say, I will never talk about group sessions. And that is what a lot of therapists do, creating like a container that's a therapy word that I didn't really know, but therapists like that word. Mm -hmm. The group space is a container for all the things that happen and you don't break the seal essentially. And Dr. Rosen didn't impose that on us. Another one is many group therapists also impose a norm that group members will not have relationships or contact outside of the group experience so you couldn't, you wouldn't call up a group mate and go get Thai food on a Saturday and you certainly wouldn't date a group mate. And that's a really big one. And Dr. Rosen also does not impose that one. Those are the two that make other therapists extremely nervous. And I can understand why, but so if you read group and you're like, whoa, this is super weird. Um, it's not, it is not the norm. The way that I have taken to describing it is Dr. Rosen is very unorthodox, but he's not unethical. Mm -hmm. And some therapists don't agree with that, which is also fine. I mean, think therapy is so important that there should be lots of different kinds, right? Lots, we're all sick in different ways. There should be lots of choices in how we pick people to help us in our journey of mental wellness, right? Yeah, and I guess this this next question will be pretty hard to answer 
given that we only get to live one life. But do you think the lack of those two norms, confidentiality and interaction outside of group, um, had they been enforced, you think they, how do you think they would have affected your, your healing process? I would have just had such a different life, which sounds really dramatic. But whenever I think about that, I think about how in the early days of group, when I was starting to really get integrated and attached and that's when so just to back up for one second the reason why I went to group was I was very successful on paper and was growing more and more um, enamored with the idea of death I was very very lonely and I was super successful and I didn't know how to reconcile that and I didn't have a language I didn't have a language that I'm depressed and I was so so cripplingly lonely I was also deeply ashamed and I had never, ever used that word before. I had no idea. I had a eating disorder and I was in a 12 step program and I still didn't understand that that red hot feeling of I'm bad is called shame. And I felt that most of the time. So I go to Dr. Rosen and he says, oh, you want relationships in your life? And I was like, yes, I desperately want, I wanted deep friendships. I wanted a hygienic, kind, sober boyfriend. I wanted to have a, just, I wanted a relationship with people in the world where they would just come over to my house and I wouldn't have to put on lipstick and put on an outfit and like be something other than I was. I wanted an open flowing door, which is a metaphor, right? For the kind of friendships and relationships I wanted. And I was far, far away from that. And when I started to get integrated, all these steps I took didn't necessarily happen in the group room. I started calling a group member every night to tell her what I ate as a part of inoculation for all the shame I felt for eating. Like I had a ton of shame about what I ate, how I ate, when I ate it, part of my eating disorder. I called Rory every night for three years to tell her my food. If we couldn't have had contact outside of group, I don't know who I would be. I don't know the state of my eating disorder. It's really impossible to imagine. And the, the friendships and the network that I've developed. And it's interesting too. People ask me, people are also very concerned that I'm too dependent on Dr. Rosen or my group. And well, actually they're really worried about Dr. Rosen, right? He gets paid and I don't ignore that, but the, he really, really fosters us creating a network, starting with the group. And then it spreads out into the rest of our lives. My husband and I, because I know how to do it from group, I know how to create a network and I can do that at my kid's school or in our community, in our neighborhood, because that skill has been built. So it is, it is pretty impossible for me to imagine, like, what if I hadn't gone to Russia with Patrice and her family in 2005? That's a whole huge set of memories and experiences I just wouldn't have if we could only see each other for 90 minutes in a session it's really, I, I, what I picture is whole colors just erased from my life. Sure. Yeah. And thank, thank you for that thorough answer. It made me have so many more questions. You know, as far as the norms go, it, and I'm not a therapist, but it, it seems like the confidentiality definitely seems aimed at the benefit of the participants because people might feel, you know, obviously more comfortable if they know their stuff is a secret. But this other thing you're mentioning about 
outside of outside of group and how Dr. Rosen's sort of unorthodox uh, methods allows you to like learn how to build community and friendship. Like I don't, that seems like a, a, a perhaps a more effective uh, norm to relax um, just because like, you know, one of the pillars of mental health is the your ability to have friendships and community mm-hmm. and all that. So yeah, I also, this is my understanding. And if, if you were to ever interview Dr. Rosen, he would probably give a different answer. But when the, what I've seen transpire my years in group, it's been 20 years. And my understanding, how I would put it is, many of us come to group, myself included, suffering from addiction. So I had my eating disorder, which is, I consider that an addiction. There's addiction all through my family tree. So I... I'm saturated in addiction and the hallmarks of that were shame and isolation and to impose upon me, you can't talk about this. It just gives me one more layer of holding secrets of protecting people. You know, I'm a daughter of an addict and a big part of my dysfunction in relationships is protecting other people, keeping secrets, being emotionally cagey and withdrawn. And if there were, rules put on me when I went to group, I would never say a word. They would say something to me like, where'd that come from? And I'd be like, well, I don't want to tell you. I don't want to tell you about my mom or my friend or my dad or my brother, because I'd be protecting them. And there's something about those norms enabled me to break out of the paradigm of addictive family patterns of secrecy and don't tell, don't tell you're in big trouble. If you tell that haunted me. And when I got to group, I understood I didn't have to dance with those ghosts anymore. Everything was speakable. I could say whatever I wanted to say wherever I went. And it really set me free. Yeah, that's, that's really beautiful. And uh, yeah, I'm so glad to hear that. Shame is like this. It's such a heavy word. Hmm. Um, It's such a powerful force. Um, and, And yeah, as you said, it's protected sort of by by secrecy or like the when when you think about holding something a secret if you ask like why mm-hmm. then like the the automatic answer that maybe our minds would come up with was is cuz it's bad right like yeah. why keep the secret oh well it's bad it means i'm bad we don't want other people to find out that we're bad yeah um that that definitely resonates with me when i was a kid um i wasn't as tall as the other kids in my grade and so I took these human growth hormone shots every night for like two years. But whenever I did it, it was like in secret in like my Mm. parents' bathroom. And, Mm. you know, it was the family's business, you know, no one else's business. And I think I internalized some of that to mean, well, I guess this means I'm bad, right? Like why else wouldn't we, you know, write about it in the New York Times? Right, right. Like we're not, yeah. When I think back to some of the things that I recognize through the layers of excavation and group all those years, some of the things that I took on as secrets were, were silly. They, they were just like my family's norms were to just like, don't tell people your business, which doesn't sound like a horrible thing to tell a kid, but I was super sensitive and I didn't know where to draw those lines. And everything that happened that I saw had an emotional component because I was a super sensitive kid. So now I feel like, well, if I say what I saw my mom do or my grandma said, if I tell, then I'll be in trouble Therefore, whatever happened must have been horrible. It just takes on a life of its own and then it distorts and molds inside of me. And I ended up, it was not a surprise 
once I looked back that I was really far away from people because if they got near me, they were going to smell the shame, right? They were going to, they were going to find me out. It's like a very deep, deep version of imposter syndrome, but it was, it was not just in the professional realm at all. It was like thorough and through and through. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I've got questions prepared, but sometimes it's fun to just organically follow one thread to the next. Um, I wonder then, you know, in, in, in raising your family now and also just for yourself, what place do you think um, secrecy like um, should live? Like, are there benefits to it? What, what do you think is like a healthy amount of, of holding secrets? Or what is your opinion about, you know, sort of skillful ways to reveal and not reveal? Like, what, what do you think is, the, is, is a good way to go about it? Um, yeah, I, I, to be perfectly honest, I struggle a lot with that. One thing I'm clear about is that my kids don't have to ever keep a secret for me. Nothing that I tell them do they have to hold in the dark, in the dark of their hearts. Like I just, that is a, that is a through and through rule. Now that doesn't go both ways because they deserve privacy. So the things that they tell me doesn't mean I get to go tell them, right? Um, that's part of being the parent. And it's, it's very challenging you know, it started out easy, but now it's getting much more nuanced because they'll hear things about their friends. And I'll want to tell them, you know, don't talk about your friend's business. But does that sound to them like keep a secret? So we have a lot of conversations about this. And we talk a lot about one of the things I really understood in group early on was I don't have to tell everyone my business or let go of all my shame to everyone, but I need to have a place where I can go where it is all speakable, right? So I want to offer that to my children. It may not be appropriate for them to go to an after-school program and talk all about other people's business. They're welcome to say whatever they need to say to me. And if I ever have to take that information to a third party for various reasons, I make that very, very clear to them. And you know, what's challenging about all of this is there is no one right way to do any of it. It depends on the context. The only bright line rule I have for sure is I don't tell my kids things that they can't tell other people. And that's that that to me feels like the best possible way to keep them free. Um, and then as soon as I say that, maybe I'm missing something, but I really, really want them to know that carrying secrets for other people is a way to carry shame and i'm not available to to participate in that on their behalf mm -hmm. well i sense maybe another book coming about how exactly to work with secrecy um, <laughs> in the future so i'd be excited to read that if you ever if you ever figure it out yeah okay great perfect so one one term that you used uh earlier that i think maybe deserves a definition um, and I think I might know what it means, but you said as you participated in a group over the years, you started to become more integrated. What, did, what does that mean, integrated? Yeah, I think for me, integrated, what that means is I'm the same Christy when I walk into the student lounge at my law school, when I go to a 12-step meeting, when I walk into group, when I talk to my family. Now, even as I sit here today, 20 years in, there are ways in which I front <laughs> and um, bring out other parts of my personality and am less um, florid in others. 
But for the most part, I am the same person in every context. And I don't have to hide lawyer Christie when I'm talking to people from a 12-step program who may be struggling with finding a job. And I don't have to go to group and pretend like I'm a hot mess anymore when the truth is I'm I'm most of the time pretty stable. So I get to be a full person in every room I walk into. And that's possible for me because I'm attached to people who are safe and who have taught me how to live in the world as myself and have held me all these years in all these different contexts. It's given me a very strong foundation. It's helped me get in touch with my own solidity. And the irony is I became more solid on the inside as I became more connected to other people. And that helps me move through the world as one person at all times. Mm. Yeah, there's a part of the book, right, where... And maybe you're on a jog, I think, when you you notice like a, a feeling or a voice, something about mm. feeling okay, or there's this sense of okayness. Am I recalling that correctly? Yeah, that was really, it felt like an out-of-body experience because my internal monologue from my first bits of consciousness has always been, try harder, try harder, go faster, you're not quite right, you're definitely not okay. You will be when, when you get a boyfriend, when you get an A, when you get into law school. It was never something that was okayness right here, right now. And I was six years into seeing Dr. Rosen before I had this out-of-body experience where a voice inside of my own head, when I was all by myself, was very, very clear. You are okay right this minute without anybody else, without any of your accolades, without any of your achievements and your precious transcript right now, naked on the lake, not literally, but metaphorically, you are okay. And it was the most electrifying experience I've ever had all by myself. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it, that sounds like a really powerful experience. Um, I think some of what you're describing, I, I listen to a lot. There's the therapist um, located, and she's a meditation teacher named Tara Brock. I don't know if you... Mm, I love her. Yeah. So she talks a lot about this idea of spiritual reparenting and like, mm. you know, building that voice of okayness. And yeah. yeah. I think it's so. So something else you mentioned that I, I thought was interesting, and I don't know that much. So I'm in a group, but I'm in a group for OCD people. Mm. And... Um, there's no like Yoda like figure in it like there is in yours. So I think, you know, we're doing something wrong. But um, <laughs> I would say that for me, it's nice um, to meet people with similar problems mm -hmm. because that that itself is uh, takes away some of the stigma and makes it more normal. And I don't know, it just yeah. makes you feel less alone. Um, I'm wondering in the 12 step programs, and I'm guessing that was for eating stuff. Why do you why do you think that those years of 12 step, which only feature in the book a little bit. Why do you think they weren't really effective in helping you work on the shame stuff? I That is a great question, and no one has asked me that. And that is exactly the question that I had in the years leading up to seeing Dr. Rosen. I kept thinking to myself, I have everything I need. The 12-step program that I was a part of arrested my bulimia. There's no other way to say it. I worked the steps. I got a sponsor. I went to the meetings. I did all the things. And my bulimia 
was arrested. I don't know any other way to say it. I was no longer binging and purging. And it was a huge, huge miracle. And then I felt myself plateau after maybe three years. And I could just tell I was stuck in so many ways that I couldn't even see. You kind of just know. And I kept thinking, well, I just need to work harder. I need to do another fourth step, which is an inventory of your moral failings, essentially. Mm-hmm. I need to get a better sponsor. I need to go to more meetings. And I had this wonderful gift that had been given to me of you know, food sobriety through the 12-step program. And I still was so lonely and still so unattached to other people and hadn't even started on shame. And I don't know why. I think that there was very, very deep work I had to do. There was trauma in my background before. Oh, well, actually, my eating disorder started probably when I was five. The trauma, I had a very traumatic experience where a friend of mine invited me to Hawaii with her family. And while we were there, her father drowned in front of us. I had never dealt with that. I had never dealt with some of the legacy of addiction in my family. And God bless the 12-step programs, but they can't do everything. I was trying to get them to do everything. And part of it was I wanted it to be everything. Mm. Part of it was I didn't have money for therapy. I did not have the kind of money that therapy costs. And I ended up having to take out a private loan through my law school in order to pay for it until I became a lawyer and had a salary that could, I could set aside for mental health treatment. So some of that is, I really feel for people have reached out to me and they say, well, what do I do if I can't afford it? And I, I, I understand that burden. I really, not everybody can go get a private loan. Not everybody has a a law job on the horizon And I'll tell you, it was very motivating in law school. I knew I was already motivated because I'm that type of person. I was compensating for my lack of personal relationships. But I also knew in the back of my mind, I've got to get a good job so I can pay for therapy. (laughs) So that's a very real thing. And 12-step programs are awesome. What I'm happy to see now, especially since the pandemic and there's a mental health crisis in this country, there's a lot of organizations that are recognizing that and doing sliding scale or, you know, that's, that's the glory of group. I ended up in group cause I didn't have enough money to go by myself. Group is one third, the cost of individual. I could not have afforded Dr. Rosen one-on-one, but group is, you know, it's, it's a lot cheaper and it's a great, it's something great to look into if money is, and if money's a factor in your mental health treatment. And for many, many people, it absolutely is. Yeah. Yeah. That answers another one of my questions. So yeah, so group therapy is cheaper. Um, but now that you have the means, I, I'm assuming, do you still prefer um, to, you know, group versus regular or, or what's your feelings about that? Yeah. You know, my plan when I started with Dr. Rosen was, okay, well, in the back of my mind, I thought I'll do this with this crazy therapist and I'll do group for two-ish years, and we'll see what happens. And then when by then I'll graduate, and I was gunning for one of the big corporate jobs, and I'd have enough bank, and then I'll go get a, quote, real therapist, where I'd lay on the couch and have all the attention to myself. And what I've discovered, even though I have the means to make a, to have a <laughs> one-on-one therapist, I have done it a few times throughout the years. I've been so bored being alone, talking to one authority figure 
it just doesn't appeal to me. I find that I do several things. One of them is a lot of performing. Mm-hmm. There's just like, I have to entertain this person. <laughs> I have to delight them. And that's exhausting. And in group, I carry that with me into group, but in group that all gets stripped away so quickly because it's such a dynamic atmosphere. The other thing, when I I recently, this summer, I did some individual therapy just to test it out. And I, beyond being bored, it felt like playing a game of checkers when I'm used to playing three-dimensional chess. It just was super flat. There was no one laughing at my jokes except for this therapist who seemed codependently to laugh at me. And, you know, what am I doing trying to make her laugh anyway? So there's a lot of there's a lot of dynamics that I really, really appreciate. And also to everyone's point, the biggest benefit and byproduct of my therapy are the relationships. And so the thought of cutting all of that out and just zeroing in to quote, get all the attention for myself. I just, I, that does not appeal to me personally. I also recognize like I'm not in acute crisis. Like Mm -hmm. I've talked to some people who are like two weeks away from two weeks out from like a very traumatic sexual experience they have no interest in a group. And I totally would not be like, no, you should do a group. That's a person who needs something very different than someone like me. The last point I'll make about that is Dr. Rosen has observed me having relationships with my group mates. So therefore he knows how I act around older men, younger women, younger women who are, who are, I was going to say younger than me, who are younger, more successful, who I'm jealous of. He's seen me in so many contexts and really, really knows me in a way that was just he and I sitting in a room. He wouldn't know as much about me. I could tell him, but he has seen it up close and personal because he's watched me get jealous of someone, get triggered by someone, fall in love with someone all under his nose. And I just think it gives, obviously, a more complete picture. And I can't imagine not having all of that dynamism in my sessions. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, I think a lot of that makes sense. And obviously what you said, just for some people who have, you know, pretty urgent needs or, you know, maybe they're a suicide risk or something like that. Yeah. Um, need need more immediate attention and, and can't just monopolize, you know, a whole group session with their with their issues. Yeah, totally. Um, that's pretty, uh, the part, the, the, the aspect of you taking out the loan, um, for group therapy, I found interesting because it's, um, it's kind of ballsy, right? Like you have enough, you either have enough faith in group therapy that you know it's going to work and therefore it's, it's worth taking out a a loan, which I, I don't know what the APR was or, or, or you just were really, um, uh, really needing help, and so it was worth uh, the the financial investment. What what were your thoughts at the time? Sure, I I definitely w- really needed help. My thinking at the time was, I need something. I definitely need something. I was very afraid I was going to 
act on some of my fantasies about ending my life. And I understood that to be very serious. And I took that seriously. And I'm grateful that I did. My thinking was, okay, I either way, if I'm going to get any kind of treatment, I need a loan, I need money to do it. So I can take out, call it $10,000 for group, or I can take $30,000 out for individual. And I chose the quote cheapest, most economical route thinking, okay, well, this guy kind of just has to keep me alive for the next two years. I was a second year law student. So second year and third year. And then when I graduate, I can reevaluate all of this. And it, I, I thought of it like, okay, this will be my stopgap measure. And then I'll get some real top shelf help <laughs> once, once I have the means to do so. But I, I knew I needed help. And it seemed like the the it was closest within reach financially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, good for you for doing it. I I wonder how many people have taken out loans for therapy. I, I've never heard of it before. Yeah, I really am. I there's a part of me that when I look back, and certainly because I wrote the book, I have this this document that helps me look back. There's a couple of decisions that I made that I'm in awe of, I don't know what to call it. I call it grace. How did I know? How did I know to make that investment? And I really do think that it also just tells you how much pain I was in. I was in so much pain. I was really, really afraid that I was going to become a tragic statistic. Mm-hmm. And I I can't even... I can't quite explain. I think a lot of people get in a lot of pain and their bottoms are a lot lower than mine. And I'm just grateful. You know, some of that could be that I had recovery in the 12 step program. So I knew, I knew I didn't have to go all the way down to a really, really terrible crisis. I believed in grace and, you know, coming through and, and miracles. i had already had that experience and, I was I was pissed off. I had to pay so much for this one because the twelve step one is free. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the end, somehow I was willing, and it it obviously worked out. Totally, yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad that it did for you. Um, yeah, and for you know people in general who are suffering out there, it's it's uh, easy to think that there's no solutions, but mm-hmm. um, people mistake themselves for being like extremely unique. I guess in that yes. regard. Um, you know, we're not all so different, right? A lot of us need the same kinds of things. Well, that's, that is a really important point. And that's something that group reinforces every time I go, which is I go in there and I say, I'm having this problem, whether it's about finances or sexuality or parenting or how I feel about my body or my hair or my skin, whatever it is, I have never once laid out my suffering of any degree without someone around the circle nodding their head. I see you. I got you. I am you. That is huge, huge, huge. I have gotten well because other people have nodded and encouraged me. They've either been there before and they're on the other side, which is tremendously um, inspiring, or they're in there with me and together First of all, I'm not alone, which is huge. And then secondly, maybe together we can figure out how do we get to the other side of this psychic pain? And it has worked over and over again. I wouldn't trade it for anything, those experiences. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so um, I'm glad that you mentioned sexuality because I, well, I think one of the reasons why, well, you can tell me why you think the book is such a page turner, but I think one reason is because there's like a lot of sexual stuff in there and that's what people, <laughs> you know, like look yes. at the internet, you know, it's full yeah. of that stuff. Like that's what people are interested, you know, in reading and thinking about. It's like on our minds as, you know, reproductive beings. Yeah. Um, do you think that's the reason why it was a page turner? And um, do you do you ever like I know you've done so much work on shame and just like owning your life and your life's experiences, but do you ever still feel any pits in your stomach or any hesitation like uh, about about being as um, sort of raw and unfiltered and um, in in your disclosures? Like, do you do you still ever wake up with those feelings, or are you like sort of like? transmorphed uh beyond beyond that kind of stuff well the short answer is i still have moments where it's it's strange where the sh the shame sort of pops up sometime how i feel like right now in my body talking to you i feel mostly a sense of pride and joy that the book includes the scenes that it includes including lots of bad sex i had and i'm proud of that because for lots of reasons, but one is everybody's having sex of some sort and disclosing it adds to a conversation that I think is important for people to have conversations about what are we doing with our bodies? How are we participating in our own debasement de 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 and lack of pleasure? Also, I really wanted to offer to the world the kind of book that I love to read, which is always very specific and very intimate. I like those kinds of books. Those books really speak to me. My teachers write like that. The people in my writing groups also write like that. So to someone who doesn't write and have a community of people who's writing all their bad sex scenes, um, this looks like so brave, so raw, so honest. This is kind of the water that I swim in. You can tell from the book that in group, we're encouraged to be very specific about what happened, when we felt what, where was his hand, what did you feel? And the more specific we are in group, the more we sort of purge ourselves of the shame, right? And then something similar happens on the page. I had written earlier drafts of this book that were very tepid compared to what it became. And I had a teacher say to me, I can't see this. I can't see what you're talking about here. And I was like, well, what do you mean? <laughs> She's like, where's your hand? Where's his hand? Where were your clothes? And I could hear that the problem that she was having was like, it was vague. So, so no one could have any feelings about it. And then once I just decided we're either doing this, we're either in or out on this, we're either going to write these scenes, we're going to write a different book. And I decided to go all in, obviously. And what helped me and continues to help me to this day is two things, reading other books where people are really explicit about their sexuality, their sex lives, their, you know, I'm really lucky in some respects, like my story doesn't have, I was not transgressed by when I was a child, by adults who took advantage of my body. All of my stories were I was an adult woman who consented to situations that were not good for me. And I had to learn how to stop doing that. But I'm not going to help any reader if I don't say what happened 
what it was like, what happened and what it's like now. Otherwise, what's the book, right? The other thing that helps me a lot is looking in other mediums. Like I watch a lot of female stand-up comics mm. and they are, first of all, some of them are so raunchy. I can't even listen because <laughs> I'm kind of prudish, believe it or not. You're but prudish. I know. Well, in so, there's some ways of talking about some things that I'm just like, I can't. I'm sorry, uh -huh. I can't. But if someone like Ali Wong, Hannah Gadsby, Amy Schumer, I can totally appreciate and recognize they're standing on a stage and people are looking at them as they're telling their story. I'm at least behind a computer. No one's having to look at me as I'm as they're reading. And so I feel very brave when I compare myself to like Hannah Gadsby or some of the comics that I really love who are doing real brave things with face-to-face -face audiences. Totally. Yeah. Well, when you put it in that context, um, yeah, it makes it, it, I understand it a lot more. Um, uh, so I'm kind of curious what, what is on your reading list or what are some of the books that, um, have inspired you or, or maybe within this world that you'd recommend, um, oh. to either people who like this kind of stuff or other books about maybe mental health that, that have inspired you? Sure. There's so many great ones. Oh my gosh. I just, I stand on the shoulder of giants. One of my favorites, the book that really unlocked a real longing in me to really tell the truth of my body and what, ha what I did to it and what I put it through. Um, it's a book by um, the writer's name is Lydia Yuknovich and her memoir is called the chronology of water. And it is absolutely stunning and definitely touches on mental health and poverty and addiction and drugs and how art can save art making and storytelling and communities can save people's lives. I really, that was my North star book when I was writing group. And another one that I really love that touches on many of these things as well. It's, and I keep these on my writing desk at all times. Um, Kiesi Lehman, he wrote a memoir called heavy an American memoir. And he's a black writer. He's from Mississippi. And he talks about disordered eating and addiction and race. You know, he's got the extra layer, right, of having a black body in a white supremacist society. And how could you, how do you find sanity, peace, wholeness under these, you know, under these pressures, constantly exerting themselves on your body? So those are two huge ones. Another one that was really um, important to me is Claire Dieter's Love and Trouble. I just love that book. It too is a memoir and she's writing about, she found all her old journals from when she was like a teenager and she was very promiscuous. And when she was an adult, married, two kids, had already written a book, was big advocate of yoga. She found herself kind of returning to that 13 year old body and her lust and her promiscuity. And she was trying to find the tender, the tendrils that connected her to her 13 year old. And it's a really beautiful meditation on sexuality and coming of age and all the weird. What I love about these books is they talk really up close. They bring in the lens and they look at these things that happen to us when we're really young mm -hmm. or like 13 or five. I mean, it's not just like super young, but, and they, they bring the camera in close and they're like, 
what does this do to a psyche to have this just strange thing happen at this house one time and this man brushed against me or this babysitter um, transgressed? It's like those events matter. And I think when readers come to those these very well rendered scenes, they look back at their own life. We've all had slippages and transgressions and just weird shit happened. And you're like, what was that? And maybe you've never talked about it or looked at it, but it's an opportunity for reflection and sort of seeing how, what's, what, what those scenes, how they became stories in our lives. And I just, I love that so much. It means a lot to me. Yeah. Thank you for those recommendations. Um, I'd heard of at least one of them, but the other ones sound really great too. So um, something that's in the, well, obviously eating is in a big part of your life relationship with food. And, and as you mentioned, the 12 step programs, and you used to have to call, I think one of your group members, Rory at yeah. night to tell her how many apples you'd eaten. <laughs> yes. And you had all these uh, pretty strict rules around food that, you know, needed to be relaxed sometimes like in yeah. job interviews. Um what are your what are your nuggets oh, nuggets is a good pun what what is your wisdom there around eating um what piece have you found and and what what do you think has helped you the most in your relationship with food i would say even up to today this morning what helps me the most is sharing with somebody else i have now i have i i'm living in the glory of a middle-aged body and I have a lot of feelings about that from anything from my eyesight to the shape of my stomach seems to be different. And when that rolls around in my head by myself, I get really crazy, really fast. But the minute I reach out to someone else, I have a dear friend and she texted me how she was feeling about her stomach and that especially now in January, I don't know when this will air in February, but in January, there's so much noise about what we're going to do to our bodies and resolutions mm. and eating. And it's very noisy. I, I do my best to not participate in that because that doesn't work for me. And she said to me this morning, I'm going to go on the compassion diet and I'm going to have compassion for my body, whatever shape it's in whatever it's doing. And all day long, that just really softened my heart towards myself. Because there was a point this just today, this is today, I looked down, I was volunteering at my kids school, I looked down at my pants, and I was like, ah, just that spark of a moment where I was like, I wish my legs were skinnier. Mm -hmm. I was in a third grade classroom. And I was like, hmm, do I wish my legs were skinny as this eight year old girl next to me? Like, how crazy am I? And I just thought compassion, the compassion diet, like I'm not eight, I am 48 and I have the body I'm supposed to have. And I texted my friend later and I was like, thank you for telling me that I was having like, I'm having a few moments of body, body hatred. And when I turn it over, then I can get to compassion and acceptance and neutrality. What I really want is to be neutral and to go live my life and do things like help children and make a nice dinner and write better books and keep on going. But I can get kind of caught in a whirlpool about my body or my eating, but I can get out if I reach out for someone else. And that's, that's remained true since the first time I called Rory. Sure. Yeah. The common denominator here seems to be uh, other people, community uh, connection. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. I, it's like, it's so simple. 
And every now and then I'll think to myself, well, it won't work on this. It, this is this, this problem, whatever it is, is going to take something just a little more sophisticated than this mamby pamby business about go tell someone, motivate yourself to like use the network. Every time it really helps me get out of my own way. And it's not to say that my network of group mates and friends and recovery people, they can't solve all my problems, but they can help me see where the solutions lie. Like maybe I need to call a lawyer or a house painter or, or do nothing. And I can't see those action steps and I can't find sanity and peace on my own. I do need those other voices to help just guide me, put their hand on my back so I can breathe and figure out what's next. Sure. And I think it's a testament to the the failure of this myth of rugged individualism mm. that so pervades uh, our society here. I agree. Uh, I totally agree. So Christy, uh, I don't want to take up too much of your, more of your time, but it's been wonderful talking to you. I just ask you this one last question. Um, you know, what are, what are you working on? What should listeners or readers look out for? Where can they find you? What, what would you like to, you know, broadcast? Sure. Uh, readers, I mean, readers, listeners can find me. I'm on Instagram. I'm usually hyping up whatever I'm reading. I'm a very enthusiastic reader and I love to talk about books. So I'm at Instagram at Christy O'Tate. I'm also, I have a second book that will come out. I think it's going to come out in 2023. It's another memoir. And this time I'm focused, I'm looking at my female friendships, uh, some of the some of the um, shenanigans I've had in my relationships with female friends and how I've come to, how I've come to have better relationships with women. Cause what my experience was, I, I went through group. I put my life together with the help of all these people. And I found this wonderful partner and we started a life and I thought, Oh, well, I'm just going to like cruise to, you know, cruise to my grave essentially. Mm -hmm. Cause I thought I had it all figured out. And then once I got stable romantically, I looked up and realized I had a lot of mess in my friendships and in my ways of interacting with women that I couldn't see when I was busy trying to straighten out my romantic life. So I've written about that and there will be a book coming soon. That's so, that's so interesting. Yeah. I can't wait to get my hands on it. Um, well, thank you again so much for being on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thanks for having these important conversations about mental health. It's, it's really important. And I'm, I'm so glad you're doing it. And thank you for talking to me.